Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. The 20th of July 2022 marked the 200th anniversary of the birth of Gregor Mendel, a Czech friar whose observations of plant breeding laid the foundations for the modern science of genetics. In this episode, we unearth some of the less well-known stories about Mendel's life and work and learn about the latest research into the genetics of human traits that would have blown his mind. Last month, I was lucky enough to be invited to the Genetic Society's event at the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardens at Wisley, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Gregor Mendel, arguably the forefather of modern genetics. It was a packed day of fascinating lectures from the Society's latest crop of medal winners, covering a wide range of topics from epigenetic inheritance to mutations in early development to sex differences in fly poop. You can catch up on the whole event, which was live-streamed on YouTube, by following the link in the show notes or heading to the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Following an introduction from Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith, the Society's President, we were treated to a lecture from Professor Alison Woolard from the University of Oxford, who took us on a whistle-stop tour of Mendel's life and work, and how the field of genetics has progressed over the past two centuries. She set the scene by taking us all the way back to the earliest days of the science of heredity, with ancient Greek doctor Hippocrates suggesting that the reproductive material was collected together from all parts of the body and handed down to the offspring, explaining why parents look like their children. Fifty years later, the philosopher Aristotle took issue with this, as he couldn't see how temporary and changeable characteristics like voices and hairstyles could possibly be inherited. This led him to the idea that the bits that contribute to reproduction are somehow siphoned off within the body, foreshadowing the knowledge we have today about how the germline, that's the cells that make egg and sperm, are separated from the rest of the body early on in development in many species. Importantly, these ideas about the nature of heredity held that the male was the one who contributed all the stuff, while the female was nothing more than a handy incubator. Ideas that remained virtually unchanged for more than two millennia. By the time Mendel was born in July 1822 in the small village of Heinzendorf in what was Austrian Silesia, now the Czech Republic, researchers such as Thomas Knight and John Goss in England were already starting to experiment with breeding various types of peas to see how their characteristics were transmitted down the generations. Peas were a handy plant to study because they had easily measurable and distinct differences in several traits, such as flower colour, height and the colour and wrinkliness of their seeds. But while these researchers carried out detailed experiments, none of them made the conceptual breakthroughs that Mendel did in his work, outlining the fundamental laws of inheritance that underpin the science of genetics as we know it today. We're not going to go over the science and the story of Mendel's pea experiments, as many people, including this podcast, have covered it in detail already. There are some links in the show notes to follow if you're interested. Instead, I caught up with Alison after her lecture to chat about some of the less well-known aspects of Mendel's life and work. I started by asking her what we know of Mendel as a person, over and above his interest in peas. Do you know, it's really difficult to say because... 
There's really not much of a historical record on Mendel's personality or interactions with others and so on and so forth. But I think one thing I would say is that I suspect he was a very anxious person, very nervous, because he did suffer from some sort of nervous conditions. And so he was ill during exams and things like that. And I think he also was very worried about how some of his ideas might be perceived amongst the more doctrinally religious members of his order. Because, of course, he was a friar and, you know, it's a bit odd that a man of God should also be a man of science at the time, or, or was that something that was encouraged? Well, it was really important that he was a friar and not a monk, because at the time um, in his monastery, the friars were encouraged to take part in the community. So there, a lot of them were teachers and so on. And in his monastery... A lot of the friars were doing academic work, so they were very interested in secular academic problems, in ideas of the universe, of hybridisation in plants, agriculture, all sorts of things that they were very involved in. And so the milieu in which he became part of when he went to the monastery in Brno was a very sort of intellectually rigorous one. What I really liked about your talk as well is, you know, you talked about his work with the peas and... It also seemed that like he got to do a lot of that science because he couldn't become a teacher. Yeah, exactly. So there's this kind of horrible thing that people sometimes say in universities, those who can do, those who can't teach. Of course, this is complete nonsense because good teachers tend to be people that really understand the science and have done a lot of it. But in Mendel's case, it's certainly the case that it was seemed to be those who could taught and those who couldn't did research, which is quite interesting, because he kept failing or not turning up for his exams to make him an accredited teacher. And that gave him more time to do his research. Yeah, it's an interesting picture. You have this idea of the, you know, the friar in his monastery doing all this science. And then this other picture is like, oh, I've got to do my physics teacher exams. Oh, no, I can't do that. Oh, no, oh, I've just got to go back to... Maybe that was his happy place, was in the garden, just, just him and his peas. Mm, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially at the time when the monastery was sort of being investigated by a group... The church up, police. Yeah, the church police, exactly. And I think he probably thought, you know, keep my head down in the greenhouse... That's going to be the best way to go. Don't say anything too controversial. Don't write anything too controversial. And that's probably why he worked on plants and not animals. Bit sexy, animals. So it's a bit... Ooh. Yeah, yeah, a bit too much maybe. And plants, less controversial, less about us. And so that was probably it. And also the fact that he came from farming families. So I think he was really interested in the application of the science that he was interested in. Could he get better varieties of crops, for example, and things like that? So we've told on the podcast the story about Mendel and his peas and his crosses. And and this is a very well-worn story. You know, you take purple peas and white peas and you cross them together. Oh, look, they're all purple. Why is that? That's very strange. But what I hadn't realised, and and this is a complete revelation to me, was what you talked about, about a more fundamental observation. So kind of unpack that a bit. So where, where do we start with this observation of Mendel's? There was a lot of debate at the time around what fertilisation involved. And a lot of people thought that it was all to do with the paternal parent. The male. The male. Funnily (laughs) enough, no surprises, right? And that, you know, the female contribution is probably a a sort of nurse. It's a sort of seed and soil thing, isn't it? It's like the woman is the soil and the man is the seed that actually provides the info for the baby. Yeah, so the idea was the germ cell or what we'd now call the egg, the plant egg cell is a sort of nurse. And then the pollen, the male cell, is the thing that 
actually produces all the content for the next generation. So there was a debate, and so whether it's pattern or like that, or whether it's biparental, both parents being involved. And there was an argument between Fenzel, who was a botanist at the time, together with Mendel's boss in Vienna. He worked under this guy called Unger. And I think that was in Mendel's mind. He was very interested in this problem. And so he set about trying to work out, you know, how many pollen grains you need to fertilise an egg because there was an idea from Darwin that you needed at least three. Okay. And, and this work was done by one of Darwin's associates who worked on the four o'clock plant because it had really big pollen grains. So it was a really good experimental system. And Mendel sort of revisited those experiments and did some really careful work taking pollen grains from different phenotypes of plants, different colour flowers, and showing that only one of those pollen grains is required. So you have one contribution from the pollen and one contribution from the nurse cell, from the egg cell, and so you need both. And crucially, that, that kind of works if you think about the colours. Say you have this idea, like, uh, say a purple plant is the dominant plant. So you have like a purple male plant and then you get purple plants. But he did it the other way around, didn't he? He took one single pollen grain from a, a white plant or a plant with no colour and then the female plant had the colour and then all the offspring have that colour. So that kind of really proved it. it's female and male plants yeah, together. That's, that's exactly right. Whichever way he did the cross, he got the same results. And that Mendel realised that that was telling him something really, really important. It takes two. It, exactly, it takes two. And his quote is actually that the fundamental evidence for the complete union of the contents of both cells lies in the universally confirmed experience that it is unimportant for the form of the hybrid which of the original forms was the seed or the pollen plant. And it turns out that he thought that this was one of his most important contributions to biology. Although, of course, we all just think of the three to one and the nine to three to three to one. All of that stuff was important too. But he thought that this was absolutely crucial. So today in the year 2022, and today we're celebrating Mendel's 200th birthday. We've had some very nice pins, very nice cake. What place does Mendel have really in the, the world of modern genetics today as, as you'd see it? I think geneticists, it's really important and useful to really engage with Mendel's papers because I think there's sort of richness there. I mean, some of the things we've just talked about are not the things that are always represented in the textbooks. But of course, the other thing is to look at the things that don't follow Mendel's rules and laws, because they re reveal some really rich exceptions that tell us so much about how heredity works, how different bits of biology work. And, you know, one of them would be the exception to crosses working the same, whichever way around you do them, is of course when you have cytoplasmic inheritance of organelles like the mitochondria, they always go through the female line, through the egg. Those sorts of exceptions can tell us really, really important things about biology. And of course our two joint Mendel Award winners today, Azim Sarani, my old boss, and Davil Salter, talking about the phenomenon of genomic imprinting, where you have sperm comes from the male, the egg comes from the female, they should come with matching half sets of DNA, but actually some genes are only active if they come from mum, mm. and some genes are only active if they come from dad. Mm. It's like, there's, there's a, a lot out there. Mm, absolutely, yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. So when Mendel was asked by his sort of colleagues and associates at the time why he thought his work had sort of gone kind of unnoticed in many ways, he had lots of answers to that. But one of them was he, he said, my time will come. And I would say that his time has most certainly come now. 
And the next 200 years will reveal even more extraordinary ideas about the nature of heredity and the biological world. So go Mendel. (laughs) That's Alison Willard from the University of Oxford. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Seeing as we're talking about Mendel, I wanted to flash back to an interview I did at another Genetics Society event on the 8th of March 2019 the anniversary of the day in 1865 that Mendel presented his work on inheritance in pea plants to his local scientific society in Brno. Six years earlier, Charles Darwin, the grandfather of evolution, had published his groundbreaking work on the origin of species by means of natural selection. In 1868, he published the follow-up to this smash hit, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, with the next bestseller, The Descent of Man, hitting the shelves in 1871. While we know that Mendel read Darwin's work, as evidenced by his pencil-marked copy of Origin of Species, did Darwin read Mendel? Someone who was speculating on this scenario is Professor Greg Raddick from the University of Leeds, a leading expert in the history of genetics who gave a lecture at the event. Here's a rerun of our chat about Darwin's ideas about heredity, Mendel's significance, and the possible intellectual relationship between these two men. Well, they had no interaction as people or as uh, thinkers. Mendel read Darwin. That we know for sure. Mendel's copies of The Origin of Species and another book of Darwin's exist. They've been studied. And people who read Mendel's famous paper on his pea experiments can detect pretty reliably the passages where he seems to be responding to things that Darwin wrote. It used to be said that Darwin actually had a copy of Mendel's paper but didn't look at it or didn't cut the pages. That's an absolute myth. What isn't mythic is that Darwin had a couple of books on his shelves, a kind of plant breeder's handbooks, which gave digests of Mendel's paper. And one of them, which gave the best digest, the relevant pages aren't cut. So that's the bit where the myth meets the reality. So Darwin had the book, but he just maybe hadn't looked at those pages. Darwin had the book with the summary, but didn't look at those pages. So what do we know about how Mendel interpreted Darwin's ideas? And then, you know, would it have mattered if Darwin had come across Mendel's ideas? Well, to take first Mendel as a reader of Darwin, Mendel's paper suggests that he was a pretty focused thinker. Uh, His paper addresses a question about plant hybrids, uh, the question of how to identify the law that governs the reappearance of characters when the hybrid character is variable. It doesn't just stay constant. So this is the thing where you, you breed generations of plants together and then, surprise, one of these traits comes back again. That's right. So famously, in his case, he studied peas. And uh, among other characters, he studied color. So you've got yellow seeds and green seeds, and you cross them, and in the next generation, they're all yellow. But when those plants self-fertilize, 
in the, the grandchildren generation, you get yellow, but you also get green back again. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> so Mendel's paper is concerned with explaining that kind of a pattern. And when you examine his copy of Darwin's books, all of his annotations are just on the stuff that interests him. So natural selection, biogeography, geology, embryology, nothing. Mendel's interested in hybrids, and he's interested in what Darwin has to say about the difference between a species and a variety, just the stuff that Mendel's already interested in. So that's Mendel's interest in Darwin. Let's do the counterfactual thing, the thought experiment. What if Darwin had read Mendel? Would it have made a difference? You know, would we have got to a theory of genetics and, and wrapped everything up much faster than the 150 years it's taken us? And, and just for those reasons, a lot of people have shared that fantasy. If only Darwin had read Mendel, you could have fast-forwarded biology from 1865 to 1935. If only they'd been on Twitter, just like tweeting about stuff, it, it would right. all be so easy. That's right. Alas, uh, the consensus for decades now, and I'm part of the orthodoxy here, is that if Darwin had read Mendel, it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. It would have been just one more fact put on the pile with all of the other facts. It would be interesting. He would have regarded it as instructive, but in a very limited way for a very particular domain within a much wider set of topics than Mendel was ever interested in. So this seems to strike me about the difference between Mendel and Darwin and from what you talked about, the idea that Mendel was just really focused on what happens when you breed these plants together and Darwin was like, really big picture, I've got all these pieces of data, I've got information about the planet and species and my barnacles and how do I bring them together into this big picture. So did Mendel's like niche stuff about plant breeding not really fit in there? Well, it's more that it fitted in too well. If... Darwin had read Mendel, uh, he would have assimilated it to experiments that he'd already done with snapdragons. So we talked about Mendel's peas and the yellow and the green. Well, Darwin did an experiment that, looking back, looks an awful lot like Mendel's. He had these snapdragons, one the common variety, one a peloric variety with these petals that were kind of different. So when, you, when he crossed the common and the peloric, all of the offspring showed the common form. When they self-fertilized, you got three common forms to one peloric form. That looks ever so Mendelian. And so given that background, had Mendel been read by Darwin, it would have been just another case of what Darwin called preponderant inheritance. That is to say, cases where one parental character prevails over another. And it was, in his view, something that happens sometimes, except when it doesn't happen. It was part of what he was trying to explain, but he didn't regard it as somehow the bedrock phenomenon. So one of the things I know about Darwin that's always fascinated me was that he didn't really go with this kind of, the concept now that we have of, of genes being inherited from mum and dad in the way we understand on chromosomes, that he had this idea of gemmules, these kind of little blobs that came from the body and then mixed and matched together when he made a baby. So was it more like Mendel's ideas just didn't, didn't sort of fit in this paradigm that he was thinking of? Well, it's absolutely true that for Mendel's purposes, all of the action when it comes to the passing on of parental characters is in the production of, of egg cells and pollen cells. Darwin's hypothesis of pangenesis, which is the closest thing that Darwin has to a theory of inheritance, 
takes as its basic premise that the whole body is generative. The whole body, in Darwin's view, is involved in production and reproduction. So he called it uh, pangenesis just for that reason. Everything is making all the time, and his claim, his hypothesis, which is the term he used, was that every part of the body is constantly throwing off these tiny, as you say, gemules or gemules, no one's entirely sure how to pronounce it, these tiny particles. Uh, and the whole body, the whole system is swarming with all of these particles. And once they're thrown off, they multiply. And eventually, if they find the right attachment point, they will grow into the same part that threw them off. That's their function. So Darwin thinks that he's able to explain not just inheritance, but the regrowth of parts, reproduction, uh, really odd phenomena from our point of view, like what he calls the functional independence of body parts, the way that parts of bodies seem to have a life of their own. All in terms of this single, rather simple set of ideas about the body constantly throwing off these gemules, pangenesis. Uh, and so he would have explained Mendel's pattern, the same pattern as the, the Snapdragon pattern he got, as to do with what happens when one set of gemules from the yellow seeded peas meets the set of gemules from the green seeded peas and the yellow ones just prevail. That doesn't have to happen. In other cases, you get a kind of union and then the characters blend. In other cases, there's actual antagonism and then you'll get a kind of blotchiness. But Darwin thought that he could account for those kinds of patterns and vastly more by this theory that almost no one accepted. I do love looking back at, at the history of science. You sort of see how these ideas have evolved and you bring together Darwin, you bring together Mendel, you bring together the work of the early 20th century geneticists and then the sort of the molecular gene. And now we know that we have DNA and it encodes proteins and mm. now we have the body and all this kind of thing. Um, do you think we've got to a synthesis? Do you think that there is anything in the kind of ideas that we have now that are particularly right or maybe like might be proved to be wrong? Well, um, one of the things that I think that's so instructive, and I found this today at the conference sharing Darwin's ideas on pangenesis, is that we live in a moment now when there's a lot of openness to the possibility that genes might not just be determining traits in a kind of sublimely determinist way, but might be interacting with other genes, with developmental contexts, with environmental contexts. Always very wobbly. It's very wobbly. And in a lot of ways, Darwin is more stimulating company than Mendel for being flexibly minded about where one might look for the next instructive phenomena. So I think there's still room for both of them in the conversation. And finally, every so often I see headlines in science magazines saying, you know, was Darwin wrong? Uh, was, was Darwin wrong? Well, of course he was wrong. Mendel was wrong too. Most science turns out to be wrong. And that's in some ways the beauty of science, uh, the beauty of history, the beauty of knowledge. You, you don't expect that what people thought 150 years ago or 100 years ago is just going to be preserved in aspic. One hopes that it won't, that things will advance. So of course it isn't right. But what else would you expect? The important thing is that it proved to be fruitful. Uh, more and more I've come to appreciate that the ideas that turn out to be stimulating, that spur creative work, 
Um, that's a huge value in its own right, not to be dismissed. And both Darwin and Mendel, in their very different ways, produced bodies of work which have been enormously stimulating to other investigators. So we've learned in a huge amount from the two of them. Uh, so we should be eternally in their debt without by any means thinking that they got it all right. The Genetic Society's 200th birthday party for Mendel wasn't just a lovely opportunity to catch up with old and new friends, drink fizz and eat a pea-themed birthday cake and delicious dinner in a gorgeous setting. Oh, my life is so hard. But it was also a chance to hear from some of the leading lights in the world of genetics who've been awarded the latest batch of Genetic Society medals. Dr Sam Bejati from the Wellcome Sanger Institute gave this year's Balfour Lecture about his research understanding how mutations early on in the embryo affect early development. You can hear my interview with him in episode 20 of our last series, Baby Boom. We heard from Professor Irena Miguel-Aliaga from the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences, winner of the Mary Lyon Medal, who presented her fascinating research on how sex differences in fruit flies affect their guts and more. And yes, it turns out male and female fruit flies have very distinctive poops. We were then treated to a doubleheader from joint Mendel Medal winners, Professors Davor Salter and Azim Sarani, my former PhD supervisor, who both made significant contributions to the discovery of the phenomenon of genomic imprinting or epigenetic inheritance, where genes coming from mum and genes coming from dad are treated and expressed differently in the developing fetus. If you're curious to know more, you can check out my interview with Professor Ros John, my former colleague from the Sarani Lab, in that Baby Boom episode I just mentioned. And find out more about the wonderful world of epigenetics in episode 15 of season 3, Pimp My Genome. Azim gave us a wide-ranging tour of his work and thoughts about epigenetic inheritance and the origin of germ cells, while Davor dug back into his greatest hits, teasing apart intriguing aspects of gene control. However, my other interview from the day is with Dr Rosa Cheeseman from the University of Oslo. She's the winner of the Professor Sir Kenneth Mather Prize, which is awarded annually to encourage research in the pure and applied aspects of biometric or population genetics to a student showing outstanding merit in this field. Rosa gave a beautiful talk showing how she and her colleagues are moving far beyond the Mendelian concept of one gene, one trait, using modern genomic methods such as polygenic risk indices to understand complex human traits and behaviours, including how genes interact with education. Looking around at the crowd watching Rosa's talk, I couldn't help but notice someone who looked extremely like her sitting in the audience. And, as it turns out, that's why she got interested in genetics in the first place. Well, originally, I think my interest was sparked because I'm an identical twin, genetically identical at least. And I was always responding to the questionnaires keenly. And, and it's always just been a topic of discussion everywhere we go, everyone we meet to like, what are the differences between you? What are the similarities? Why do you think that is? So even before I started to do any genetics, I felt like people were expecting me to be an expert on genetics and have some answer. Originally, that was what I was wanted to study and then uh, got into the field by emailing and asking if they needed someone to help doing research on the twin study that we were participating in. 
It is that thing we always describe twins as like nature's experiment because you have, you know, you can have twins that are genetically identical like you and your sister. You can have twins that are brother and sister or sister and sister but are not identical or brother and brother. And then you have you know, regular siblings and you have completely unrelated people and they're such a fascinating tool. But I'm interested to know in the world where, you know, we have huge cohorts of people and we can sequence millions and millions of genomes, is there still a place for these kinds of twin studies in teasing out these kinds of genetics? Mm, I think there absolutely is. And uh, I'm biased, obviously, from being part of a twin study, but I think there are two key contributions of twin studies. And one is the knowledge that we've built up over decades and decades of evidence from twin studies. And it's not simply studies quantifying nature v. nurture, but we know so much about human differences by studying twins, their extended families. We know about gene environment interactions and correlations and assortative mating. Like there's so much that we need to build on and not just forget about. And then secondly, we need this kind of twin data because even when we have all this amazing DNA information, we can't really interpret it unless we understand uh, the family context. And yeah, twin and other sibling and family data can really give us that information. I think it was an interesting point you raised in your talk is like, you know, parents also have genomes that affect who they are and how they come out and their behaviours and characteristics. And not all of the genetic influence in the child is directly inherited in the genes that they get when egg meets sperm. But it is quite complicated the more you think about it and expand out. Yeah, so genes in the parents are really part of the environment that you grow up in. And yeah, that comes back to your last question about the continuing role of twin studies, because we already know this from decades of research showing that parenting is genetically influenced and the home environment is partially shaped by the parents' genes. And then now with the DNA era, we can start to learn a lot more about that. And that knowledge is really valuable when we're also interpreting our genetic study results that are based on the children. Now, the area you're studying is the role of genetics in education. And this is kind of a bit, a bit controversial, a bit touchy about, well, why do we even need to do this? Why do we even need to be asking questions about whether genetics have any role in, in educational ability and things like that? It seems, it seems a bit hot potato. Yeah, it is a hot potato. And I think it's very good that people are open about it and acknowledge that it's a controversial era because we know that there's this very dark and abusive history of eugenics. And actually, there's still eugenics movements and scientific racism going on today. So it needs to be clear all the time what, what is the point is actually valuable. It's clear from twin studies and now from DNA studies as well that there is a a substantial contribution to cognitive educational differences from genetics. These influences don't work in a deterministic way, they work in interaction with the environment. I do really think that doing genetic research on education can give us a more complete understanding of why we're different and it could lead to social good if we can understand how to create schools and social environments that bring out the best in everyone and not just keep going with the unfair systems that we know we already have. So genetics can be used for good, not just misused to have a deterministic view of why people are different. 
One of the most striking pieces of data that you presented was this kind of curve showing that people who have kind of combined genetic variations in their genome, this thing called like a polygenic risk score, a polygenic risk index that puts them sort of a, a lower end of intelligence or ability, they benefit much, much more from the kind of school that they're in. So there's more of an impact of schooling for people there than people who are kind of, if you want to say, genetically gifted in, in their cognitive areas. So that actually like, oh, that does tell you something about that if, if you're a smart kid, almost doesn't matter what school you're in, but actually there could be a lot more to help people and, and help their outcomes. Yeah, I and I think that it's not going to be useful in the sense of kind of labelling kids according to their genetic makeup, but more in the use of this for research to tell us for whom are schools most important and which are the schools where kids who are lower in the distribution of polygenic schools for education attainment, which are the schools that uh, where those kids still do really well and how can we make the rest of the schools more like those schools. So yeah, I think that's where I think genetics is going to be useful for research that helps us to understand how schools can work better rather than as a way to uh, label kids, which could potentially lead to negative stigmatizing consequences. Now, you're very early in your career. It's a very exciting time for you. You've won this Genetic Society Award today. Is there a big question that's driving you forward as you pursue your research career? You know, what, what do you want to aim for next? Oof, that's a that's a big question. I think I want to really make more progress in understanding gene environment interactions. So an example of that is this study showing that genetic effects depend on the school you're in and vice versa. I think that we really need better data to be able to understand how people's genes lead them to different socially and health relevant outcomes. And uh, we can't really understand that unless we're understanding the social structures that people grow up in, their neighbourhoods, the wider regions. I think uh, now we're at a really exciting time where we're getting the data on families, extended families through history and we can map the genomes back in time and we can just really start to disentangle this complex interplay between genes and environment. That's all for now. If you're curious to learn more about how our genes shape our lives and what, if anything, we should do with this knowledge, then check out episode 24 of season four, The Natural Lottery, where I speak to Professor Paige Harden about her research in this area. Thanks to Alison Woolard, Rosa Cheeseman, Greg Raddick, and of course, to the Genetic Society, who support this podcast and laid on the lovely birthday celebrations for Mendel at Wisley. We'll be back next time, returning to the theme of how genetics shape societies, but turning our attention to the animal world rather than our own species. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip, and please do take a moment to rate in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, I'm sure, and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and it was produced by Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk.
Our theme music's by Dan Pollard. Our logo's by James Mayle. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.